Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. How's everybody doing? Good. I hope that you guys are more awake than first service because first service, you know, everybody was asleep. I told them, you know, run that coffee through the maker once again. We got to up everybody a little bit. So hopefully you guys are excited today. And before we start to study God's Word, um, we do a, need to do a little honesty test today. Now, I know you were in church, so you have to be honest about this and answer it the right way. You know, have you ever found yourself like captivated and watching one of those completely dysfunctional psycho family dramas that happen during the day on television? You know, the Jerry Springer show, Montel Williams. I'm not saying you're a regular watcher. Now, put your hand up if you've ever found yourself watching one of those. Okay, the rest of you were in church. You're supposed to be honest now. Yeah, you know, like, the truth is that almost everybody has found ourselves watching one of these things because you feel so bad for these people. It is so just completely dysfunctional. Now, if you've ever found yourself captivated by one of these things, this is your Sunday because today we have a completely psycho family drama that is about ready to unfold. I mean, we are talking chick fight. We are talking hair pulling, eye gouging. The man of the house is sleeping with the maid. Everything. Now, you're wondering, where are we going to find this kind of drama? Well, actually, it's right in our Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, we pick up and continue the story of Abram. Now, Abram has been a guy who's been following God for about 10 years, and sometimes it goes like mellow. Sometimes his faith is medium. You know, he follows God partially, like he does what God tells him to do, but doesn't really do it all the way. Sometimes his faith is pretty poor. Runs into a crisis. First thing he does is he runs to Egypt out of fear because there's going to be no food. Sometimes his faith is pretty strong. You know, he trusts God when it comes to dividing the land and lets Lot choose first. Lot, his nephew, is being captivated. He chases him down in faith, and he beats a much larger army. But last week, when he was on the epitome of these great acts of faith, we saw it started to go down, and he started to distrust. He started to doubt God. Ten years into this faith journey, and God has promised him a son, and he still doesn't have it. God had promised him land. still didn't own it. Last week in Genesis 15, God confirmed that promise to him on both accounts. That actually he wouldn't inherit the land, but his descendants would inherit the land. And yes, he would have a son that would come from his very own body. And then God signed it with literally a blood oath promise an irrevocable promise in that day. Now, you would think that after that kind of confirmation on those things from God, his faith fuel tank would be fueled for like another 20 years. Even if God did nothing, you think he'd be okay. But actually, that's not what happens. Just one chapter later, he has incredible spiritual amnesia. One chapter later, 
he goes from a man of descending faith to a man of complete dropout faith, and he acts like a total pagan. Each one of us has things in our life that we wish we could take back. Like when you squeeze the tube of toothpaste too much and you can't get it back in. Or choices you make in life that you wish you had never done. But there's no way to take them back. This is that moment for Abram. Today he makes some choices that he wished he had never done. Choices that were made completely without faith. Let's go ahead and begin. If you have your outlines out, we'll go ahead and begin in, in verse 1. Let's set the scene. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's the problem. But she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Let me set this up. Sarai. We're going to look at the meaning of the names of Sarai and Abram. Sarai's name actually means Princess. Now, I don't want to read into this too much, but whenever you marry a woman by the name of Princess, you usually can figure that her closet will be full and your wallet will be empty. This is like the original high-maintenance woman, I'm guessing. Don't know for sure, but when you call somebody Princess, that's what you get. Now, Abram, his name has some interesting significance to it because his name literally means exalted father. Uh, translate that across to today's vernacular, super dad. Here's the problem. Super dad has no kids. Every day he gets up and he gets a coffee mug out. You know how guys have a coffee mug with their name on it so nobody else uses it? He gets up and looks at his coffee mug and it says, super dad. 86 years old and no children. It is time either to get a new name or a new coffee mug or both. And he's tired of, of sort of being mocked by people. Oh, hey, aren't you the super dad guy that has no kids? He's tired of explaining to people, oh, they're coming. Yeah, they are. Got a cane. <laughs> they're coming. I'm, I'm 86, but God promised uh, like 10 years ago and nothing's happening. Every day he uh, checks his mail to see what uh, the postman has delivered. And every day he checks his wife, Belly see if God has delivered. And for 10 years, there is no package. Are you beginning to sense his pain? The mockery and public ridicule of super dad coming up empty? Women, can you begin to sense Sarai's pain? How many of you always wanted to be a mom when you're growing up? Women, did you want to be a mom? Well, this is not good. The human race will not survive another generation. Be honest. With, so none of you ladies wanted to be a mom? Thank you. Okay, I feel better now. Men, these are the women you want to marry if they're not already taken because you will have kids with them. Well, this is what Sarai, she wants to be a mother. That's her dream. She wants to be a mom. And this wound is oozing. This wound is seeping. She's Filled with pain because God is not answering her prayers. In fact, she's going from sadness to bitterness. And it's starting to get ugly. Third person in our drama this morning, Hagar. Now, who is she? 
it says she is an Egyptian maidservant. And if you have been hanging around as we've been studying our way through the book of Genesis, you remember where she came from. Back in Genesis chapter 12, when Abram first came in the promised land and the famine hit, he turned out to move from medium faith to cowardly faith. He instantly ran to Egypt because he knew they had a super Walmart in town. And when he went down there, he was so afraid that because his wife was hot, that somebody would bump him off to steal her. So he just told half of the story. Oh, she's my sister. And he was his sister, or she was his sister, plus she was his wife. He sort of left that little part out. What happened is she got scooped up by Pharaoh to be Pharaoh's wife. And as part of the dowry, Pharaoh had given Moses all kinds of animals, it says, plus men servants and maidservants. When they got kicked out of Egypt, Abram took the men servants, maid servants, and dowry with him. Hagar was never supposed to be in their life in the first place. Hagar came into their life as a result of Abram's sin. You see that? Very important. Little point of application for you. When I sin, I pick up baggage that leads to problems down the road. Isn't that true? Whenever I sin, I pick up baggage that leads to problems down the road. So say you're a single person this morning, and you're tired of being single, so you start to get involved with somebody who's not a Christian, and you start to get involved romantically with them. And what starts to happen? Problems. And all of a sudden, you discover it's not just one problem, but it's more problems. It's again and again. And what is it? It's, it's baggage. Or when you lie. How many people have successfully been able to tell one lie and get away with it? It doesn't usually work that way. You have to tell another lie to cover the previous lie, and then another lie to cover the, subs- the previous two. It just works that way. And what we have is the sin of Genesis 12 is now coming to roost and full fruition in Genesis 16, because they kept Hagar, the one they were never supposed to have in the first place. The story continues. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now let's start at the top. Do you sense any bitterness in Sarai's voice? Any anger? Behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Sarai is ticked. She is angry, and everybody in the house knows it. You notice in her anger, do you see any prayer? Do you see her turning to God? Absolutely not. In her anger that God has not been able to keep His promise, what she decides to do is, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. If God cannot provide me a child, I am going to provide myself with a child. She's bitter, tired of waiting. Now, ladies, can any of you relate to this either in your life now or in your life in the past? Maybe you're waiting for a husband. You're tired of waiting for a husband because God just doesn't seem to be able to bring you a godly husband. 
Or maybe you remember waiting for a husband, and God never seemed to brought you a godly husband. So, at times, you were tempted to say, you know what? If God can't provide the right man, I'll go find the right man. All I care is that he shaves and has a heartbeat. You know, and if he can do that, I'll make it work because I'm tired of waiting. Maybe some of you are in the exact same issue that Sarai was facing, infertility. And you're saying, I'm so tired of all my girlfriends having kids. I'm so tired of being the only one without a kid in the nursery. I am going to do anything, no matter what it takes to get pregnant. I don't care about the consequences. I'm tired of waiting. So here's a Sarai's little plan. You know what? I have Hagar, this maidservant who works for me. She's a 20-something woman. I'm a 76-something woman. This 20-something woman is just oozing with fertility. I'm going to tell my husband to sleep with her. And you know what? She'll get pregnant and finally, finally we'll have the kid that we've been so desperately longing for. After Hagar gives birth to the baby, I'll hold the baby, I'll love the baby, I'll cuddle the baby. I'll finally have children's toys and a onesie in my own house. I've waited so long. God, if you can't answer my prayer, I can provide for myself. Folks, that is a bad place. Not a good thing. Let me just give you some application points here. Beware of something called synergism. Now, what is synergism? Synergism is a big theological term, and it simply means this. God needs my help to answer His, or God needs my help to do His will. God needs my help to do His will. It's thinking God needs my help. Now, by the way, does God ever need our help? Absolutely not. He is fully capable of doing exactly what He wants without our help. But the way that synergism is talked about in the common language today is God helps those who help themselves, right? I need to do whatever I need to do to answer my prayer. And beware of impatience and trying to force God's will my way. Guys, we we looked at girls earlier. What about you? I had friends growing up that they were tired tired of waiting for a good and godly girl. And what they would do is they would say, any girl, any girl, this has to be female. I'm so tired of being alone when all my friends are married. I don't care, God. I'll make it work. I'll bring them to church. I'll tell them about Jesus. I'll be doing missionary dating as long as I have to. And God says, no, wait, have patience. I will bring the right person into your life at the right time. Don't choose to sin to accomplish what you think is my will. And every time you choose to sin to accomplish what you think is my will, you will suffer pain. You will suffer failure. You will suffer hurt. It's always that way. Let's go back to Sarai's little plan. Her plan is what she calls the rent-a-womb program. I'm just going to use Hagar's womb for Abram's son. Now, interestingly, this is, there's some precedence to this. 
When you study something like the Code of Hammurabi, which was written in 1750 B.C., you find that it is a completely acceptable way for a woman to deal with her infertility to have her husband sleep with her maid and then take the child as her own. The Nuzi tablets, which are found in Iraq, which also date all the way back to this very same time period, talk about this being a culturally acceptable way to deal with infertility. The husband would sleep with the maid. But the point is this. What is culturally acceptable is not always biblically acceptable, is it? See, what was culturally acceptable was to introduce polygamy. But is polygamy what God desires to solve the problem of infertility for a woman? Let's think of it this way. When it, in Genesis... When Adam was alone and God said it was not good for man to be alone, so God created a woman for Adam. How many women did He create? One, not seven. Notice that? When you first see polygamy introduced in the Old Testament, remember this earlier in Genesis, it came about with Lamech. Lamech was an extremely evil and wicked man, and as part of his evil, he had multiple wives. In fact, every time in the Old Testament when it talks about polygamy, did you ever notice it never says anything positive about it? It never recommends it to people. In fact, every time you look at polygamous households, what you find is breakdown, heartache, and pain. I know there's a show on, uh, is it, I forget the name of the network, but it's called Sister Wives, and it's like this guy that has three wives, and the idea is, this must be wonderful. It isn't. I guarantee you off camera, it is terrible pain and terrible drama. You come into the New Testament. Is polygamy ever acceptable? Absolutely not. In fact, you find in the New Testament that the husband and wife relationship is designed to parallel the relationship between Christ and the church. And here's my question for you. Christ saved himself for how many brides? One, the church. Christ did not marry all the religions of the world, did He? He only married the church. In fact, when you get into Paul's letters, it gets even more um, narrow because it says that every leader in the church should be a literally a one-woman man. Now, some people think that means that you could never have uh, been divorced or never had a spouse that died and remarried. That's not what it's saying. It says every leader in the church is to be a man who only has one woman in his heart and life. That means the woman you're married to. Not the woman you're married to plus another lady you're really close with at work. Not the woman you're married to plus all the other ladies you look at on the internet. You are literally a one-woman man. So the idea of polygamy as an acceptable option to solve the infertility problem is not biblically allowable. It wasn't then. Now, interestingly, let me just mention this. The issue they're struggling with is infertility. And they're looking at a uh, not-God-honoring not not solution to it. Sorry, a little dry today. But that same thing happens to us today. There are many people who are struggling with infertility. There are people in the church right now, I know, that are struggling with infertility. And there's all kinds of options out there to how to solve it. 
Some are biblically acceptable. Some are biblically unacceptable. Let me give you an example. One of the things that's unacceptable oftentimes is in vitro fertilization. You say, well, why is that unacceptable? The typical way this is practiced is say they harvest about a dozen eggs from the mother and they take the semen from the father and they fertilize all 12 eggs at once in a little Petri dish. Now, every single one of those eggs is a fully viable human being that only needs two things, nutrition and time. They just take, let's take half a dozen of them and implant them in the mother. And the other six we're going to put in the deep freeze next to the frozen peas. Now, those six, they grow up in the mother and are born, and the mother says, I have six kids. I can't handle anymore. Well, what happens to the other six that are in the deep freeze? Is that an acceptable option? Is human life that cheap that you can create it and then just choose what you're going to destroy and what you're going to culture at will? No. That particular option is not a biblically acceptable option for infertility. By the way, just so you understand that even though it is not necessarily directly stated here, it is completely implied that this is a serious issue of sin in Abram's life. Because Genesis 16, when Moses wrote it, he paralleled it directly with Genesis 3. Genesis 3 was the original uh, Adam and Eve eating from the tree. Notice, in Genesis 3, it's Adam and Eve. Genesis 16, it's Abram and Sarai. And Genesis uh, 3, it was about a forbidden tree. Genesis 16, it's about a forbidden woman. Genesis 3, Eve brings the forbidden fruit to her husband, who complicitly goes along with it. Genesis 16, Sarai brings the forbidden woman to her husband, who complicitly goes along with it. You see, this is like the original sin all over again. What happens now is probably the biggest understatement in the entire Bible. Here's what it is. And Abraham uh, listened to the voice of Sarai. <laughs> Think about this. It could have said a lot more. Sarai, you, you want me to do what? <laughs> You're telling me there is a 20-year-old woman in our bedroom right now dressed in lingerie, and you want me to go have sex with her? And I'm an 86-year-old man? Ex excuse me? Like, you're asking me to do what? Well, if you say so, Sarah, I'll do it for you, dear. Whatever you say. In fact, I promise, dear, that I will keep having sex with her every day until we're absolutely sure she's pregnant. Just doing it for you, dear. Can you catch the irony here? Two chapters ago, he was a great man of faith. In faith, going forward in battle against all odds to rescue his nephew Lot. Here, he's gone all the way to the bottom. No faith. Just complicitly walking into his wife's sin and joining her in that sin. And he, he knows it's wrong. But he's going along with it anyway. Look how it continues. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, 
Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, did Sarai's plan work? Yes, and definitely not. Yes. Did Hagar conceive? Yes, great news. Sarai is excited. You could see her running around the house, getting out all the little baby clothes that she so longer wanted, going to the store, buying the diapers. This is great. We're finally going to have a kid. I love it. This is so good. And then she notices that Hagar is uh, not content to mop the floor anymore. Hagar is not so content to just be her servant. In fact, Hagar is rubbing her belly and saying, you know, Abram is the, like the big mahoff of this whole place, and I am carrying his child. Women, do you realize there's like one too many ladies in this guy's heart right now? Do you understand? It's not going to go well. You see, what happened is Sarai placed, uh, made the definition of success having a child. And anytime you make the definition of success something other than honoring God, your life will fall apart. Isn't that true? Here's the point. Success is honoring God. You know, anything else will lead to failure. Success is honoring God. Anything else will lead to failure. If you make the big goal of your life to get married above honoring God, your marriage will not be happy. If you make the big goal of your life to be successful at business, and not necessarily to honor God in that business, your business will not be happy. If you make the goal of your life to get pregnant, no matter what it costs, things will not go well. And this is exactly what happened to Sarai. Now, Hagar is pregnant. She's beginning to despise her mistress. And she's doing this. You know, Sarai, you are such a loser. For your entire life, Abram has been in tears. You have been in tears. You've been racked with this pain that Superdad doesn't have any children. But as soon as I came into the picture, it all changed. As soon as I slept with your man, I could provide what he always needed. Sarai, let me just push you out of the picture. Because, you know, Abram's giving all of his attention and all of his love to me. Sarai, it's amazing to be pregnant, to feel that child moving within me. Oh, there he kicked. Do you want to put your hand on the belly and, and just feel him? You'll never know what it's like, but I do. Abram, all he wants to care about is, what can he do for me? How can he love me? Hasn't even asked for you for weeks. Oh, my feet, my feet are starting to swell now that I'm pregnant. I'm going to lay in the bed. Oh, Abram, my feet are swelling. Could you rub them, honey? Sarai, the baby's hungry. 
Could you run to the store and get some pickles and ice cream, please? Can you see the tension that is going on when she despises her mistress? Things are not going well. The Scripture has some very interesting words to say about this in Proverbs. Proverbs talks about, many times, the way life works. And it has a very interesting proverb. In Proverbs 30, 21 through 23, it says, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. These are things that make the world fall apart. And what is the fourth one? A maidservant when she displaces her mistress. A maid when she takes over the role of being the wife of the house. Guess what, folks? Remember I told you we were about ready to have a chick fight? Here it comes. A big time knock them down, drag them out brawl between two totally ticked off women. It's right here. Right here in your Bible. This is the Jerry Springer show. Let me read how it happens. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. I told you, here begins the chick fight. Sarai says, nobody is taking my man from my arms. First person she gets mad at is Abram. Now, I find this sort of funny. Because whose idea was it for Abram to sleep with the maid? Sarai's. Who gets in trouble for doing it? You see, it's just like your house, guys. Isn't this what happens? Your wife tells you to do something, you think you're following directions, and we get in trouble for it anyway. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, see, this is what it's like. It, it happens in his house too. But before we totally mock her, okay, and say, you're just nuts, lady, because now you're yelling at the man you told to sleep with the maid, isn't there some truth to this? Whose responsibility is it to protect the household from sin? The man's. Remember back in Genesis 3, when Eve was being tempted by Satan, where was Adam? Sitting there, watching the whole thing, not guarding his wife, not protecting his wife from sin. And in Genesis 3, when it came time to eat the forbidden fruit, who just went along with his wife's plan? Adam. And when God called them to account, who did God call first? Because who was responsible? Adam. Sarah is right. It was Abram's responsibility to protect his home from sin. It was Abram's responsibility to stop his wife from this crazy, harebrained plan, not to just go along with it. Men, let me just put this down for you. A husband is, is responsible to protect his wife from sin, not follow her into sin. Husband's responsible to protect his wife from sin, not just follow her into sin. 
Now, here's where it gets ugly. What happens is you notice this passive, cowardly model continues. Sarai is on the war page, on, on the warpath, and she says, it's your fault. And he says, you know what? Well, you just do with Hagar whatever you please. He, like, throws his hands up and steps away, which, by the way, is pretty bad male leadership, isn't it? Like, you just were sleeping with this lady, and now you have no respect for her. She is carrying your child, and you don't even seek to defend her. Because what happens is Sarai is like, goes after her like there is no tomorrow. Now, this may sound like a stretch, but I will prove it to you. The idea is that Abram hears all kinds of noise in the kitchen. And what is happening is his dinner is not being made. Sarai has grabbed the frying pan and is going after Hagar and whacking her on the head. Hagar is grabbing Sarai's hair. We have a chick fight here extraordinaire. Sarai is then dropping the frying pan and going after the rolling pin to, to fight with Hagar. Hagar is fighting back. Now, you say... This is not happening in Scripture. I'm sure they sat down and had a nice conversation with each other. Here's how I'm going to prove to you that's wrong. It says, Sarai treated her harshly. The Hebrew word harshly here is the same word used to describe how the Egyptian taskmasters treated the Jews when they were in Egypt. Did they sit down and have a nice conversation with them or did they use whips? They beat them. This is exactly what goes on here. Sarai is violently abusive towards Hagar. Get her out of here. I want my man back. I don't care if I'm 76 years old. I'm fighting like I'm 30. And eventually what happens is Hagar runs. Runs for her life to survive. The story continues. After Hagar ran... The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. She's running for her life and she's at the... Uh, spring of Shur. By the way, where is that spring? It is real close to Egypt. She is going back home to where she came from. And all of a sudden, it says, the angel of the Lord shows up. Now, who is this? If you've been around for any length of time at Crosswinds, you'll remember a study we did on this. In the Old Testament, when it talks about an angel of the Lord, that's pretty generic. It simply means an angel. It simply means a messenger. But there's something very interesting in the Old Testament when it talks about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is consistently given through the Old Testament all the characteristics and the qualities of divinity. In fact, it is the angel of the Lord that is in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that goes with the Egyptians out of Egypt. Who is the angel of the Lord that is given all the characteristics and qualities of divinity? It is the second person of the Godhead. It is Jesus before Bethlehem. What happens is Jesus shows up and hunts her down. Is Hagar looking for Jesus? No. 
but Jesus is looking for her. Does Hagar love Jesus? No. But Jesus loves her. And Jesus loves her enough to tell her how to make the best of a very difficult situation in her life. Let me explain it this way. Jesus says, go back and submit to Abram and Sarai. Some of you think that's harsh. Well, if she continues on her path and she goes into Egypt, what's it going to be like there? Single, unwed mother carrying a biracial child. How do you think that's going to go? Or she can return to Abram, return to Sarai, and instead of despising her mistress, go back to submitting to her mistress. And there'll be food, there'll be shelter, there'll be clothing, and maybe most importantly of all, her child will have a father. Isn't that true? Her child will have a father, and probably a really good father, a father known as Superdad. Now, I'm not saying, and Jesus isn't saying, that the way that Ishmael was conceived was a great thing, but the point is this. Don't make your son pay for your sin. Don't make your child pay for your sin. Do everything you can to insulate them from it. Will this be messy? Yes. Will it involve huge amounts of humility and forgiveness? Yes. But don't make Ishmael suffer for it. Let me continue. The last piece of the text. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, he called, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, quote, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar, you're going to have a boy. And no paternity test needed, I can just tell you right away. In fact, uh, his name is going to be Ishmael. And by the way, there's going to be a great multitude that comes from him. And there's going to be, we know ultimately there's 12 sons that come from Ishmael. And then there's a whole nation and race that come from him. Ultimately, the Arabs come from Ishmael. But one thing will be significant about Ishmael that you'll recognize him by. That's his character. He's a wild donkey of a man who's like everybody's hands are against him and his hands are against everybody. He has A-D-D-D-D-D-D before Ritalin was invented to keep it under control. I mean, Hagar is going to need Ritalin just to parent him, much less given to him. 
He's going to be a fighter, always on the move, always in conflict with each other. And you know what? His descendants will be like him. And that pretty much has been like the story of the Middle East, hasn't it? For the last 4,000 years. True? Exactly. Point of application for you. Don't be short-sighted on the consequences of sin. Don't be short-sighted on the consequences of sin. I hear this all the time. People say, you know, it's no big deal. I'm a Christian. When I sin, I get a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's called Jesus, right? He forgives all my sins, so it's no big deal. Well, that's true. He does forgive all your sin. But that doesn't mean you can escape the consequences of your sin. Consequences continue. Like Abram thinks he's having sex with a 20-year-old woman. But what he's doing is he's writing the future. He is writing the future for thousands of years, which will result in hundreds of thousands of deaths and wars and battles. You see, do not be short-sighted on the consequences of your sin. Now, incidentally, not all Arabs are Muslim in nature. That's not true. But you can sort of say this whole religion of Islam and in particular, the violent sect of Islam, you know, it may not have even been on the planet if Abram hadn't slept with the maid. True? You see, don't be short-sighted on the consequences of sin. When it comes to impatience, and I have to achieve God's will my way, and it's okay to cut the corners and do my own thing, as long as I end up happy in the end, ooh, it can lead to disastrous results. Now, since we mentioned Arabs, I know that there's always a lot of tension between us here in the, in the, the West and those who are, whenever we deal with those who are Arabs or those of the Muslim faith, you know, how are we supposed to deal with them? What are we supposed to be like to them? And here's my word of wisdom to you. You treat them with kindness. You treat them with grace. You treat them with respect. You treat them with generosity. Just like Jesus treated their mother in the wilderness. Just like Jesus treated Hagar. Now, do we have any evidence that Hagar turned around and started to follow the God of Abram? No. But Jesus still treated her with kindness, respect, and love, and told her what's the best thing she could do in a really tough situation. Folks, those who are of the Arab descent, we treat them with kindness and respect and love, and hopefully they meet the God of Abraham through us and through our lives because we are different. Let me give you a couple quick applications as we wrap up. Here they are. First of all, beware of spiritual impatience and forcing God's hand. That's called technically synergism. God does not need my help to do His will. Beware of this. You know, if you are in the business world, don't cut corners ethically so you can be successful. It'll come back and haunt you. In the relational world, don't cut corners and start dating people who do not know Jesus. It'll come back and haunt you. Every single time. Your goal is to honor God in life, no matter what it costs you, and only then will He bless you. 
Number two, don't be short-sighted on the consequences of sin. Every time we sin, even though Jesus will forgive us, the consequences of what we have done will remain. And many times, they're much more far-reaching than we ever, ever realized. Don't be short-sighted on it. <clears throat> Number three, every child needs a father and a mother. Let me just speak very practically right here. Maybe this morning, you are somebody who is divorced. And you have walked away from the woman who was your wife. And you have walked away from your child. And the way you can apply this sermon is to humble yourself. You can pay your child support payments. Asking nothing at all of the woman who's in your child. You ask, could I please have some kind of input into my son or my daughter's life? Because every child needs both parents, not just one. You do whatever you have to to be able to be there for them. Now, I know, ladies, young ladies who have had your husband leave you and your husband who left you is a bum, and now you are a single mom with kids, I, I know that there's probably maybe no way that that guy is going to come to Jesus and act like he should. And I want to talk to some of the single men in this room. There's not a lot of them, but I just wanted to put this for you. You know, single men don't overlook those godly single moms. Don't overlook them. Because they need a husband in their life. Their children need a father in their life. And if you think about it, there's a story in the Bible that talks about this. Where there was a, a, a young single mom who was pregnant, who desperately needed a husband, whose child desperately needed a father. And there was an unsung hero, a man who came into her life and married her and took care of her, became her husband and took care of her son. That man's name was Joseph. That woman's name was Mary. And that son's name was Jesus. Young single men, you be a Joseph. Be an unsung hero to a godly woman with children who has no man. Genesis 16. It's a chapter, but it seems like it has no heroes. Nothing that we could emulate. I mean, Sarai is certainly not worth emulating. Telling your husband to sleep with a maid and then going into maniacal rage. Abram's not worth emulating and learning anything from. He's a coward. Doesn't protect his wife from sin, but walks right into sin. Hagar's not worth emulating. She's an opportunist gold digger who can do whatever she can to push Sarai out of the way and marry an old rich man and bear his son. Is there anything in here worth emulating? Is there any hero in this story? There is. The hero in the story is named Jesus, who hunted down Hagar in her brokenness, in her pain, and told her how to make the best of a bad situation. And this morning, I have to tell you that you're not here by accident. 
You're here because Jesus wants you here. Jesus, he's looking for you. Jesus cares about you. Jesus loves you. And you know what? He wants, you to tell, he wants to walk with you and help you do what is best in a good situation. And not just that. He wants to take it to a whole other level. That when you come to Jesus Christ and ask Him to forgive your sin, He promises in 2 Corinthians 5.17 to actually make you into a completely new creation. A completely new person. That's what Hagar always wanted. But that's what we actually have. Amen? Amen. How is God calling you to respond today? Well, if you're a believer, the message to you from this text is patience. Have patience in God's time, in God's way, in God's will. Don't force it, especially forcing it by getting into sin because the results can end in disaster. If you're not a believer, the message to you from this text is God is hunting you down. He cares about you, and He loves you. He wants to help you, just like He hunted down Hagar in her time of need. But the message for all of us from this is you notice this was a huge blowout, an incredible disaster by Abram. But the story continues. God never let him go. Today, if you're here and you've made a huge blowout of your life, an incredible disaster, you need to know that God is not done with you. He will never let you go. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would give us patience because many times you have us in times where it seems like we're stuck in limbo, like Sarai was so frustrated waiting for a son. But Lord, we need to remember that you have not forgotten us and you will never let us go. And help us to remember that this week. And thank you especially that even after Abram blew it, you didn't let him go either, and you won't let us, uh, us go. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.